The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. When was the last time you splurged on something when you knew it probably conflicted with one of your financial goals, like paying down debt or saving for future fun in retirement? Well, if you do this, you're not alone. It's because of present bias, or to use the psychobabble term, hyperbolic discounting. As humans, we have a tendency to let the immediate rewards of the here and now win out over a desired future reality. To learn more, check out the Cash Dash Dash, a planning tool brought to you by the Guardian Network to see just how much your short-term spins might be impacting your longer-term financial goals. Play today by visiting www.livingconfidently.com play. Hello and welcome to Standard Deviations. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today in the studio, which means my basement, uh, by Jack Forehand, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Validia. So, Jack, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Jack is doing great work in his day job, but he's also dispelling myths about people in finance having bougie hobbies by being a competitive sailboat raiser. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you talk, you wrote in a blog post that you love competitive sailboat racing and investing for a similar reason. And it's actually a reason why I tell people I like psychology. And it's because you can never get that good at it. What's wrong with us? Why, how sick in the head are we that we have uh, adopted these careers and these hobbies that you can never get quite good at. Why are you so drawn to unsolvable problems? I don't know. You know, I think in a lot of ways it's the challenge of the whole thing. You know, when you when, when I came into investing, you know, no matter how you approach investing, there's always a bet. You can always be better at it. So you can always achieve a better return at less risk. You can always achieve the same return. You know, or, sorry, a same return at less risk. There. I don't know if you read The Man Who Solved the Market. I did, um, yeah. I, I did too. And you know, yeah. one of the interesting things about them is they are constantly trying to improve what they're doing. I mean, those guys have produced 66% gross returns over 30 years, mm-hmm. which is just unfathomable. I mean, that's something like triple Warren Buffett. And yet they are constantly trying to improve. So it just shows how unsolvable a problem the market really is. You know, if those guys haven't figured it out, even though they're producing 66% annualized gross returns, you know, how am I going to figure it out? And, and so I just love the fact that it's, I constantly can get better at it. No matter, no matter how good we are at it, we can always do better. So you can always be better. So do you think that markets are solvable though? I mean, you can always do better, but do you think markets are solvable or the, the Jim Simons of the world are an absolute aberration? Yeah, no, I think there's two ways to look at markets being solvable. One is from the perspective of like an individual investor who has realistic goals, who's willing to stay with their plan, through, you know, has a long-term time horizon, they can solve the market because they can achieve what they want. Mm. For someone like me, who's trying to build strategies, no, I don't think markets are solvable. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. so there's, there's the goals-based investor who can achieve returns that are commensurate with their goals. You've, you've solved the market right. for your personal benchmark, as it were. Right. But then for, for people like you who are always trying to squeeze an extra drop of, of alpha out, it's, there's, there's no finish line. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the individual investor, you know, in many ways, should not be trying to solve the market. You know, if, if they were trying to squeeze a little bit of more alpha out, you know, typically that ends badly for them. So yeah. it's, it's important to understand that you know, 
they, they're not, they don't need to solve the market to achieve their goals. They don't need to solve, pick the perfect investment strategy. But for someone like me, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no way for me to be too good at this. And, you know, going through what we're going through with value right now, I mean, is, is a good example of that. You know, we're all going to go through periods where we struggle. You know, even if we're following a sound investment strategy that works over the long term, we're all going to go through periods where what we do doesn't work. And that, that's sort of part and parcel for, you know, being an investment professional. Yeah, so a follow-up question for this, and let me just re- sort of re-emphasize what you said. I think that's such a powerful concept. Like, what solving the market looks like is different for, for everyday investors. What solving the market looks like is is as unique as the individual that's having that conversation. I think that's a really compelling and an empowering concept for everyday investors. But, you know, one of the reasons I bounced from clinical psychology so early uh, is actually and weirdly the same reason that drew me to it was it was sort of unsolvable. And one of the reasons why I burned out on being a clinical psychologist uh, is that the the types and varieties of personal problems that someone can lay at your feet is effectively infinite, right? right? right. And um, it, it felt like I could never quite get as good as I wanted to be, and I candidly burned out. It stressed me out. How do you, just from a self-care and, and happiness perspective, how do you get the, the strength that you need to keep trying to solve unsolvable problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to keep it in perspective. And, you know, I think it's important to understand, you know, what is the best I can possibly do with this problem I'm approaching here? You know, if, if you look at it the way you're saying, you know, if I look at it as I can never beat this, you know, then you're right. I'd probably beat myself up all day. You know, why haven't I produced better returns? You know, why haven't I, you know, produced, reduced the risk of my, our client portfolios or whatever it is? You know, there's always a way you can be better. But I try to keep a perspective on it of, you know, there, there's only so much you can do. And so I try to manage that all the time and say, you know, because as we talked about earlier, you can get yourself into trouble by trying to solve the market too much. Yeah. You know, so if, for instance, if you remember long-term capital management, I do. you know, they figured they had solved the market. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they took the thing they had done to figure to solve the market and they leveraged it like crazy, you know, with the expectation that this can't go wrong. I've mm-hmm. now solved the market. And if you really believe that, you could leverage it infinitely and you can, you know, you can do that forever and you can produce huge returns. And then something they thought couldn't go against them went against them. And so they had never really solved the market and, you know, it, it ended up blowing them up. And so but by the same token, you know, if, if I'm constantly thinking I have to make this little tweak here and this little tweak here to solve the market, you know, ultimately I'm probably going to hurt myself. Hmm. And so it's important to keep it in context, in context and keep perspective with it. Yeah. So long-term capital management and the, the hubris therein is a really nice segue into our next conversation. One of the things that I love about your work and your approach is that you're one of the most um, applied, I think, behavioral theorists out there. There's lots of asset managers who profess to like behavioral finance, but you have actually gone through the process of questioning your own beliefs. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, and, and in one uh, piece of writing you did, you wrote letters to your former self. Yes. And so I want to read some of these letters to your former self and talk about sort of the learnings of those. So this letter to 2004 Jack says, Dear 2004 Jack, you've been running quant models in a simulated environment for a while now, but you're about to launch them as actual money management portfolios and manage actual people's money. And that will be a game changer. You can no longer assume that an investor will stay the course during bad periods. No matter how many computer simulations you run, nothing will ever prepare you for this. People do the wrong thing at the wrong time. They have an uncanny knack for abandoning strategies at market bottoms and when underperformance is about to turn around. Your strategies can be great in testing, 
But if investors can't stick with them, they will never realize their potential. You need to recognize that human behavior needs to be a central part of the construction process for any investing strategy. Sincerely, 2019, Jack. Okay, so I love that last line, of course. I mean, this is about all my work is about this. You need to recognize that human behavior needs to be a central part of the construction process for any investing strategy. So with the knowledge that 2019 Jack has now, what specific portfolio level tweaks would you tell 2004 Jack to make to to help people better stick with uh, these strategies? I think there's a few things. You know, one is I think I would probably do a little more multi-factor investing than I did. You know, I think any of the individual factors work very well on their own, but the behavioral problems are much bigger if you run one factor. So if I put a portfolio together that's pure value, you know, right now, as we're seeing right now, you have a 10-year period where you're struggling and most people are going to abandon that. Whereas if I put a portfolio that's 50% value, 50% momentum, my return in the long term is probably about the same, but my ride is much smoother because they're negatively correlated to each other. So when value has been struggling here, momentum has been doing okay. And so that helps you, they help to balance each other out. So I think one thing I would do is I would do more, you know, build more multi-factor portfolios probably. And I've learned that over time and we do that now, but I think that's, that's one thing I would have done. Yeah, are you are you of the mindset that factors should be that so a, a multi-factor portfolio? Do you construct it so that half of it is the deepest value and half of it is the deepest momentum, or are you looking for uh, equities that that exhibit qualities of of both uh, value uh, and momentum simultaneously? It's the first one, and you know there's really good evidence for either approach. Mm-hmm. But what I like to do is you know I think one of the ways I think these work best in what I call an ensemble approach which means you know, I wanna get the most extreme on this side and I wanna get the most extreme on this side and they somewhat cancel each other out from a risk perspective. And so that reduces the risk, but it also gets me the factor exposures I want. You know, I don't wanna to try to run a value portfolio where I buy a lot less cheap stocks hmm. in order to reduce volatility. I'd rather buy the ultra high momentum on one side, the ultra high value on the other side and put them together. I think that's a better construction technique, but you know, if, if you look at research affiliates and AQR, I mean, there's disagreement among the main players as to what the best way to do that is. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's one thing, is you would run, instead of these strict uh, factor portfolios, you'd run sort of combinatorial uh, portfolios. What else, anything else you would do? Yeah, you know, I think we've learned a lot about the upfront work that goes into this. And you know, I think we've learned a lot about you know, what we can talk to people about upfront to, for them to understand what they're getting into. And because part of this is managing, you know, the volatility on our end, but part of it is managing the investor and them understanding what they're about to get into. Because we are not, you know, the, we are a very focused factor manager. So, you know, we're not somebody taking the S&P 500 and tilting it a little bit towards value. So what we do is going to have major ups and downs. And so, you know, one of the things we've done that we didn't, that we do now that we didn't do then is, you know, we have this letter we give to all of our new clients. And the letter essentially says, here are all the horrible things that will be happening to you over the course of us managing your money. And you know, that'll be something like with the market going down, you're going to lose 40% of your money at some point. You know, we're going to underperform the market by say 10, 15% in a year at some point. You know, in order to get these you know, returns that these factors produce, you know, in the focused returns, that's what has to happen. And so we, we try to be as upfront as we can in filtering people and not putting people into something they can't stick with. Because you know, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that the best strategy that someone can't stick with is a terrible strategy. You know, so my, if, if you say a factor strategy can outperform the market by say 2% a year, but the person can't stick with it, that strategy is far worse than the S&P 500 because they're gonna abandon that strategy at the absolute worst time. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I talked about the differences uh, between the time-weighted and the dollar-weighted returns to the best-performing uh, concentrated equity fund of the early aughts, so 2000 to 2010, got like 18.5% a year. But then the you know the average investor in the portfolio had negative real returns, uh, you know negative dollar weighted returns, uh, just because of when people entered and exited the portfolio. So it's it's crazy to think that you could have that kind of success. You could outperform your next closest peer by, in this case, I think it was three percent a year, uh, and then not do right by your investors in a, in a very real sense. So you're helping people pre-experience. Uh, what could happen with an eye to helping them take that ride. Right, and you you never can really do it because the pain of these things is very hard to look at in advance. And I know you've done a lot of work and ha- how you might be able to do that with Tulip, mm-hmm. but you know it's it's very difficult to put someone into that pain before they've actually experienced the pain. You know, it's, it's easy for somebody to look at a piece of paper and say, oh, 40% decline, that's fine. Or, you know, there's been some research that if you show it in dollar values, that's more, mm-hmm. that's better, but it's still not, you know, it's still not something you can understand until you experience it. And so trying to figure that out in advance, and particularly because we're on the very end of the behavioral spectrum with what we're doing. We have some of the stuff that's the most difficult to stick with because we're trying to capture these factor premiums over time and we're trying to do it in a focused way. And so that, that these, in, in many ways, these can be the toughest types of portfolios to stick with. And so, you know, we, we sort of are a lab for behavior in some ways because this is, this is the most difficult thing, you know, to follow maybe in, in some ways. So speaking of this distinction between sort of theoretical or academic learning and experiential or lived learning, I want to uh, now bring up the letter to 2008, Jack, and everyone probably knows how, yeah. how this is going to go. Uh, it says, Dear 2008 Jack, you think you know what a bear market is. You've studied them. You have analyzed market history to look at their frequency and severity. But here's the thing. What you're about to experience is something no textbook can teach you about. So we learn about markets in a sterile, academic way, but we experience them in this messy, visceral way. Uh, what practical tips do you have for managing the lived messiness of living through a, a really bad market? I mean, again, I would say the first thing is do the work up front. And so put an investor in a portfolio that they can stick with during a bear market. And, you know, we don't do a lot of work around bonds and, you know, other diversifiers, but, you know, those are really important because if, if somebody can achieve their goals with a mix of bonds and stocks, you know, there's no reason for them to be taking the risk of, you know, what might happen if they lose 50% of their portfolio. And so part of it is, you know, understanding what the person's goals are and setting up a portfolio that can achieve those goals, but they also can stick with, you know, that's really important. Another thing that I think I've found to be important is conviction. And so, you know, you can argue a value portfolio is better than a momentum portfolio. You can argue a momentum portfolio is better than a value portfolio. But in a lot of ways, that's not about which one produces more excess return. That's more about which one the investor believes in more. So if I've got a a guy that's really a value guy, if I put him in a value portfolio, he's more likely to stick with it, you know, versus arguing with him about, you know, well, we need to put some momentum in here. And the same thing, you know, if someone's a believer in momentum or growth or something like that, you know, they're probably more likely to stick with that because they believe in the underlying philosophy behind it. So I think I found that as well. Yeah, Dan, Dan Egan has a great piece that's, I'm going to mess up the title, but it's something, it's titled something like Investors Need to Have Faith. And he writes in this, in this really excellent blog post about the need to just believe in something, like all sorts of approaches work, you know, right? Quality works, carry works, momentum, value, you know, indexing. There's a hundred things that work. 
but what you personally implement in your life, you know, he says needs to be consistent with your, you know, quote unquote faith system, your right. belief system. It needs to coincide with who you are and what you believe uh, because everything's going to work sometimes, everything's going to not work sometimes. Uh, but the best predictor of whether or not you cross that financial finish line is is your ability to stick with it through the highs and lows. And so, yeah, I think, you know, a big piece of, uh, of evolving sort of a theoretical belief system in markets is just not that it's always right. It's just something you can have faith in and, and, and pin your portfolio to so that you have, have reason to stick with it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm also a believer, you know, as much as I'm a quant investor and as much as I think what we do is appropriate for many people, it's not appropriate for most people. And, you know, Jim O'Shaughnessy talks about the two points of failure for investors often. You know, the, the first point being, you know, they're going to panic when the market is down. And the second being they're going to panic when their strategy underperforms. And so that second point of failure is one that a lot of people don't need to take. You know, I'm a big believer that you're going to get premiums with these factors if you use them over time and if you can stick with them. But if you're a person that can't do that, you know, you're better off before 2008 or anything or a period of underperformance like value comes now. You're better off understanding that up front and indexing your money than you are abandoning these things at the exact wrong time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think there's been a real um, there's been a real uh, boom of, you know, we'll keep with our religious theme. I think there's been a lot of missionary zeal around uh, indexing and passive investing in recent years and, you know, in, in large part because it's done so well. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how sticky those those beliefs are through through a downturn. Uh, it's, you know, how, how effective a faith is that uh, versus other forms of, of market faith. I have no presuppositions about whether it'll work or not. It'll just be interesting to see. Right. It's a good point because you can't, the first point of failure I was talking about, you can't eliminate that. Yeah. You know, passing and investing doesn't get rid of that. So, you know, passive investors are still going to have significant problems when the market's down 40%. Yeah. It's just active investing, you know, or, or factor investing adds the second point of failure. That's right. Um, yeah. So in the behavioral investor, I advocate for creating a man of steel versus a straw man. So to kind of make this distinction, a lot of times when we have a point we don't uh, agree with, say a political point, uh, we will create a, a weak caricature of an opponent, opponent's position and then we'll just beat it up. Right. And so this is how we get uh, groupthink. This is how we get sort of bigoted and, and closed minded, small thinking. Uh, and so in the behavioral investor, I have this whole section about creating a man of steel, which is basically taking the opposition's ideas, but creating as as powerful, as robust, as strong an opponent viewpoint as you can to challenge your own thinking. Now, you did this. You are a value investor. You're yes. a, a value investor, but you did this. You created this man of steel uh, in a piece that you wrote called The Case Against Value Stocks. Uh, and in this piece, you specifically mentioned five possible reasons why value might not make sense. Uh, and I'd like to kind of touch on each of them because, you know, value has had a, a heck of a tough time for, for quite a while now. Uh, so the first of these was that the world is different. What did you mean by that? So there, there's two different arguments for this, but one of the big things you rely on when you're a factor investor is base rates. So you rely on what has happened in the past is going to happen again in the future. And so there's been a couple major arguments recently about something has changed. And so those base rates that we rely on in the past are no longer as reliable. And there's really two of them. You know, one is based on uh, Josh Brown at Ritholtz is probably a big proponent of this. One of them is that technology has changed everything. So whether it's the invention of the microprocessor or the invention of the internet, at a certain point, something changed. And, you know, 
now you know capital is cheaper, technology is, you know, companies that you utilize technology are doing a lot better. That has changed things. And these cheap companies that are not utilizing technology, you know, those companies are going to struggle now. And this is something that's going to go perpetuate for a long time. It's something that's going to continue for a long time. And the second one is uh, Ben Hunt at Epsilon Theory probably did the best job of making this argument is that the Federal Reserve has changed everything. And so in the wake of 2008, we've seen quantitative easing. We've seen interest rates held artificially low for a really long period of time. You know, you can argue that value stocks don't do as well in that type of environment. And if that type of environment is going to continue for a really long time, maybe that's a situation where value stocks are not going to perform as they have historically. So the, both of those are, are arguments you can make that something changed. And so when I, when I go back in my charts and I say, you know, when, when spreads for value between value and growth get this wide, you know, there's a 90% chance I'm going to outperform over the next 10 years, you know, maybe that's not valid anymore because maybe the world is different from the world that, where those numbers existed. Yeah. So the second argument is that too many people are doing it, right? So you see uh, someone like a DFA come in relying on the academic research around price to book ratios. Now suddenly they're running strategies with billions and billions of dollars that, that implement you know, price to book as, as a primary consideration. Talk, talk to us about too many people doing it and how that might be harmful. Yeah, so in, in theory, if too many people bought value stocks, what would happen is the prices of those stocks would get moved up. And so value stocks would not be as much of a value as they have been historically. So what's allowed you to get that premium historically would not be present anymore. Um, to be honest, I think this is probably the weakest of my arguments. And the reason is because what I just explained has not happened. So the spread between value and growth stocks right now is actually historically wide. AQR just had a paper that's in the 97th percentile historically. So we haven't seen that bidding up of value stocks relative to growth stocks. So it's an argument many people would make, but I think it's probably my weakest one of, of the ones I came up with. Okay, fair. So the third one is that the capital following value is more permanent. Ta talk to right. us about this idea. So one of the things that lets any factor or, or a factor like value work is the fact that people are gonna abandon it when it's not working. If value worked all the time, it would stop working eventually. And so part of it is, as someone who believes in value, I want people to abandon the strategy you know, when, when it's not working because that's what's allowed it to work historically. So there, there was an argument, this is on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, it was the uh, anonymous Twitter user Modest Proposal, mm -hmm. and he was making the argument that people who stayed the course with value in the late 90s were actually rewarded in a huge way because value between 2000 and 2007 did really well. And so maybe that's made that capital more sticky. And so maybe this time through, people are going to stick with value, you know, more so than they have in the past. And so, and that could negatively affect the value premium. So enough people, uh, remember a, a really nice run for value, enough people have finally listened to Warren Buffett, you know, that they're, that they're just sticking with the strategy now. Um, so the fourth one I thought was the most, uh, most interesting to me, you say big data might be leading to more value traps. What do you mean there? So let me give you an example. So everything we do as value investors typically relies on historical data. So if I'll use Walmart as an example. If let's say Walmart is really cheap, but based on my traditional value metrics, price to book, price to sales, price to earnings. But let's say, you know, institutional managers, hedge funds out there have their satellite photos of Walmart's parking lots and they show that Walmart's parking lots are empty or they have the credit card data they've gotten, you know, from, from their data provider. And that shows that transactions are down at Walmart. Well, we could have a situation where my historical fundamental data is not as valuable as it used to be mm. because other people have other data that sort of contradicts that. So, you know, it could be a situation where that makes historical fundamentals less reliable than they have been in the past. And then the last one, uh, I think you spoke to it a bit early on when you mentioned Josh Brown's ideas 
uh, but you say value might be a bet against technology. Right. This is a, a lot of this is based on Lawrence Hamptel's work on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially everything we're doing with factors is to some degree a sector bet. And so value typically tends to be a bet against technology because it's usually the lowest weighted you know, sector inside of a value portfolio. Or even if you do, you take a strategy where you match the weights of the S&P 500 with your value strategy, you know, you're still in a situation where you're buying Micron technology and you're buying Western Digital. You know, you're not buying Netflix and you're not buying Google. So you know, it, it, to some extent, you're always making a bet against technology by, by investing in value because technology is where the high growth names tend to live and you know, value strategies tend not to buy the high growth names. And so if that continues, if the outperformance of technology continues, obviously you know, in 1999 it did not continue. If it does here for an extended period of time, that, that's a problem for value investing. So you go through this Man of Steel exercise, you come up with five really compelling reasons why value may be uh, no longer you know, working in the way that it has historically, and yet you write in the post that you're still a believer. So right. how do you go through this exercise, come out the other end, still with faith and value? Yeah, well, this is actually an interesting thing to talk to you about because I'm sitting on proverbially on your couch right here, <laughs> is that, so I went through this exercise, I tried to combat my confirmation bias, you know, I found all the best arguments against value I did, but at the end of the day, where am I? You know, in a lot of ways, I'm right where I started. So how, you know, how can I figure out whether I actually combated my confirmation bias? It's a really hard thing to do. You know, you're, you're always the, judging yourself is always the most difficult thing to do. So the reason I end up in favor of value is, is a couple reasons. One is because the long-term data still supports value. You know, if, if you go back, you can see, you know, the value premium has been tested back 100 years. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of evidence to support that value investing still works. You know, secondly, we've seen this before. Um, we've seen these periods of struggle before and we've come back from them. Uh, you know, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management did an interesting paper. I don't know if you had an opportunity to read it, but they looked at the period from 1926 to 1941, which is about a 15 year period where value underperformed. Mm-hmm. And what they found is a very similar situation to now. There was significant technological change. You know, the companies that were making the technological change were doing very well. The old companies were doing poorly. But what happened eventually is the firms at the bottom of the barrel figured out how to use the technology. Ah. And once they did that, you know, they didn't become the high growth, high growth tech names on the other side, but they at least you know, improved their businesses and they, they beat the reduced expectations, which is what value is all about. You know, value is all about exceeding the low expectations. And so you know, I, I think seeing that it's happened before and seeing that the long-term data supports value are both good reasons. And then I would say finally, it's the academic argument for value in general. You know, why does value work? Value works for two reasons. One, because it's riskier than the market, and two is because of behavioral reasons. And so can we see anything in this current period that says value is less risky than it has been in the past? You know, no, I don't, I don't see any evidence of that. Do we think people are gonna stop you know, overestimating the problems with companies behaviorally? You know, probably not. Um, you know, people have always done that. You know, people have always behaved badly in certain ways. And so I think these behavioral factors you know, have staying power. So if both of those academic arguments still hold, you know, the long-term data is still there. I'm still a supporter of value, but by the same token, I have to look in the mirror and say, well, you know, I went through this exercise and I didn't change my opinion. So, you know, how successful was the exercise? Yeah. So I introduced this framework in the behavioral investor that was sort of my own uh, self-reckoning, you know, to, to decide whether or not I wanted to believe in a strategy. And I came up with three things that I wanted to look for. Uh, one was evidence and data, which of course value has an abundance of you know 100 years of, of, of evidence and data. So that's, uh, you know, that condition's met. <clears throat> 
The second condition is uh, there, there needs to be some theory as to why it works because, you know, of course, when there's, there's as many economic variables as they are, you regress them all against each other, you're going to get some spurious correlations, right? So it has to work for, for a philosophical, a theoretical reason. And of course, there's great reasons why value works. And then thirdly, uh, it needs to have a behavioral component because, you know, behavior is immutable over long periods of time. Like, you know, the example that I always give is that the U.S. started labeling uh, food with, you know, very detailed nutrition data in 1993. And since that time, the U.S. is twice as fat and, you know, three times as morbidly obese because, you know, simply knowing the right thing to do and then actually doing it or implementing, uh, you know, executing on that knowledge are like two very different things. Uh, you know, eating, uh, not eating a Twinkie is behaviorally difficult, even though it's analytically simple. And so I, I, I think, you know, value still meets my three conditions. You know, it's, it's, it's empirically sound, it's, it's theoretically sound, and it's behaviorally sound. And so uh, if you're, if you're self-deceived, we're, we're deceived together. So I guess, I guess there's comfort in our, in our, in our, in our <laughs> exactly. joint delusion. So um, this has been fantastic. Again, one of the reasons why I enjoy talking to you and, and getting together with you and, and reading your work is that you take these behavioral concepts and you don't just, um, you, you use them as a mirror and not a window onto other people's behavior. You use them as a mirror to look at your own, uh, your own process and try and improve it. So every episode I try and end with a, you know, uh, a good shrink exercise, which is free association. So I just want you to give, you know, brief answers. First thing that comes to your head, uh, you are from Connecticut. You currently live in the, in the great state of Georgia. What's the best part about living in Georgia? Well, I could give the obvious answer of the weather. Uh, and obviously this time of year, I think it's 62 degrees outside in November when we're recording this. So that's great. But I, I think the best thing about Georgia is Publix, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> Publix. First of all, the buy one, get one free. How can you go wrong with that? The sandwiches um, are incredible. Yeah, they're very good as well. And the second thing is, you know, coming from the Northeast, when you go to a grocery store and, and you need help from somebody, you know, it's, it's not freely available typically. And when, when I first walked into Publix in Georgia and every, every person would speak to you, you know, everybody was like, it would be my absolute pleasure to do this for you. You know, I've never seen like anything like that in my life. And it's such an enjoyable place to go. Publix is, is almost creepily helpful. They'll, you know, I'll check out and they will ask me, an able-bodied, you know, middle-aged man, if I need help with my groceries. Like, no, I don't need help with my groceries. I'm fine. Um, and so, yeah, Publix, I, I heard someone on Twitter say that Publix was the, the greatest part about late-stage capitalism. So <laughs> Publix, and if you have not had the sandwiches, you would not expect a grocery store to make the best sandwiches you've ever had, but they are legendary sandwiches. They really are excellent. Yes, we may we may be going to Publix after after <laughs> this for lunch. Uh, okay, so what's a what's a book that you would uh, tell every investor to read? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I have to pick a factor book since I'm a factor guy, and I would pick What Works on Wall Street by Jim O'Shaughnessy. Um, you know, it's there's so many things out there that aren't true about what works over the long term and factor investing and things like that. And I mean, Jim did a really good job of getting to the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, getting to what actually works over the long term in investing. And I think that's you know, it's a book I would recommend anybody read. Even if you don't do factor investing, you know, it's important to understand what works and what doesn't work. And he does a great job of distilling that down. Yeah, a, a true pioneer, a good guy, and the funniest guy on Twitter. So shout out to Jim O'Shaughnessy. Uh, and then finally, what what's a, you are a factor guy, self-professed. So what is a powerful investment factor that goes overlooked or underappreciated? 
I don't think, you know, there's so many people trying to attack these factors these days from so many different directions. I don't know if there are too many that are overlooked. I mean, back in the day, you could have said low volatility um, because, you know, low volatility doesn't, doesn't make perfect sense that you should be able to take less risk and get either the same or more return. But these days, low volatility is on fire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's not as overlooked as it was it once was. So, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, if we, if we talk 10 years from now, we'll probably come up with something that, you know, we didn't know now that, it, that is a factor that was overlooked. But right now, I mean, I, I think people have, have researched this so much that I think the, the factors that actually work are pretty widely known. Are there any factors, you know, I think about things that are harder to get your arms around. You look at something like uh, innovation, right? Which is, or, you know, creativity or human capital. I mean, granted, these things are much, much harder to codify than something like volatility or price to book ratio or price to free cash flow or what, you know, whatever else. Do you think that's the next iteration of, of factor investing is trying to uh, codify and, 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 and describe these more harder to grasp concepts? I think so. You know, innovation was an interesting example. O'Shaughnessy's done some work on that. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things about if you look at returns of all stocks over time, value stocks on average outperform the market. Growth stocks on average outperf- underperform the market. But within that growth group, you get the best performers. Mm-hmm. So the best individual stocks are within that growth group. And so going back to what you were talking about with innovation, the ability to try to filter them out of an mm-hmm. overall underperforming group and find those best companies, you know, that's something I think a lot of people are trying to codify. And I, th- I think it's a very interesting area of research is, is there a way to sort of identify these growth companies that end up doing well out of a group that doesn't do well you know, because if, if you can do that, that's to some degree the holy grail of growth investing. Yeah, so that's your challenge, listeners. Uh, go go find the holy grail. Uh, take take these sort of nebulous, hard to define constructs. Uh, find a way to define them and go go make Jim Simon's money. So, uh, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've been wonderful. If people want to read your writing, if they want to learn more about you, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at, at @practicalquant, and our website is validia, V-A-L-I-D-E-A.com, and you can find all my writing there. Okay, thanks again. Thank you for having me. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian, copyright, is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020, Guardian. 2019-91528, expiration 1221.